Well, we have uh, been talking about discipleship in these various biblical texts that we've been looking at over the last six weeks. This is the seventh week now. And uh, in the text, in the biblical texts, and in the messages as I've preached them, you may have noticed that we've been bumping up against, uh, again and again and again, a particular tension. And I like to talk about the tensions that the scriptures hold for us, because there's many of them. And uh, as we, we're going to talk about one of those tensions this morning and hit it directly, and it's the, the tension between grace and works. It's the tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's the tension, really, between salvation and sanctification. And if you're going to talk about discipleship, really what you're talking about in a lifetime of discipleship is sanctification, which is becoming holy. It's a fancy word for what Christians call changing to become more like Christ. And so... We addressed it pretty much head-on last week when we talked about our possible impossible mission or our impossible possible mission or however I phrased it uh, to make disciples, right? That, that in uh, the Great Commission, we understand that only God makes disciples. Only God can change someone's heart and cause them to become a follower and to become a disciple. And yet Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. And there's an example of that tension in play. Only God can make disciples, but Jesus tells us to go make disciples. And so we have to recognize that God's sovereign, but we're responsible. And when we talk about discipleship in the lifetime process of being disciples, that tension doesn't go away. We hit the same tension again, because as Christians, we know the gospel. We love the gospel. We cherish the gospel. And it's at the heart of the gospel that tells us that Christianity is like no other religion, and it's like no other philosophy that salvation is received and not achieved. It's received not based on any merit or any goodness of our own or any work that we do or anything in us at all. None of that accomplishes our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then Colossians 2, 6 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord which was in grace, continue to live your lives in him, in his grace. Or in 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. I mean, that's radical. That statement is unlike any other religion. It says that We are called to this life of holiness. We are saved and to be sanctified, not through any work of our own or purpose of our own, but because Christ Jesus has given it to us before the beginning of time. And that's what the gospel is taught. That's that's what the gospel means. And so if that is the case, if, if salvation is by grace and not by any of our merit or any of our works or how we live, then why not live any way we want? Why not... Why change at all? Why would we even want to change? The gospel message would seem to leave a person exactly the way they were because nothing they've done and nothing they will do will earn their salvation. And in fact, as we will see, this is what the Apostle Paul has to face as a very challenge in his teaching in Romans 6 when we get there. And yet, as we looked at Philippians 3 two weeks ago, Paul says that even though he is not perfect and none of us are perfect or will be perfect in this life, he runs the race anyway, forgetting what is behind, straining to what is ahead. And he says that anyone mature 
would agree and imitate him in that. And then earlier in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says it even more, I would say at first it seems even more clearly. In Philippians 2, 12 to 13, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so what is this then? What's going on here? We're saved through nothing that we do, and we can't earn our salvation. We don't merit it in our own goodness. We can't accomplish it. But Paul says to run the race and to work out your salvation. What is this tension to us as disciples? And Paul is bringing to light for us, for us who are disciples, the difference in the tension between salvation and sanctification. He's not talking about the same thing. Paul brings this to light because of this very reason that every real Christian wrestles with this reality. And this is the reality that we wrestle with as disciples. It goes something like this. Lord, I know that you have accepted me not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, not because of what you saw that I would do. I know that you have accepted me not because of me, but because of Jesus. I know that you've forgiven me. I know you've justified me. I know you've adopted me into your family. But Lord, there are sins in me that I have a hold on me that make me wonder whether I really love and trust you as much as I think I do. That's the tension that lives in every disciple's life. We know that nothing that we have done has earned our salvation And yet we know that we still struggle with sin, which causes us to wonder, where is the victory? And then when we have this struggle, some of us will encounter a fairly common false teaching about sanctification, not salvation, that you will often hear from very well-meaning people. And I don't want to question the motives of people who say these things. They are trying and intending to be encouraging to you. And so they see you struggling with the guilt. They see you struggling in sin. And they say, you know what? Brother, you know what, sister? You don't need to worry about your ongoing sin. Don't fret because God accepts you without works and so there's no change necessary in your life. And that's a false teaching of sanctification. It's true that you are saved without works. It is not true that you don't need to change. Salvation is absolutely without work. Sanctification implies some change. And it's a well-meaning consolation, but it's flawed. It's flawed because it mixes up salvation and sanctification. It conflates, I love that word, I just ran into it again this week. It conflates, which is a fancy word for confuses, it improperly confuses two distinct categories of thought into one. It takes salvation and confuses it with sanctification. And it makes them sound the same, but they're not the same. And that makes the statement dangerously wrong. One, because it's not biblical. The Bible says over and over and over again that it's God's plan not only to save you, but also to change you. And you will change. And we will see by looking at Romans 6. But we could also use Ephesians 2, or we could go to 2 Thessalonians 1, or I could use 1 Peter 4, or we could go to Galatians 5. Over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul and Peter and John as well, they stress to us that change does matter, that God is in the business of transforming our lives. And so as we look at discipleship today, we have to be sure that we're not confusing salvation and sanctification, that it is our nature as disciples to be changed, to be transformed, to be in this process of becoming holy, even though we won't attain it in this life. 
And then secondly, it's not helpful, that answer that that well-meaning person might give you, it's, it's not helpful, it doesn't, that, it, that we don't really matter how we live, it's not going to help us with the deep, troubling questions of our heart, which are, if, if I really love Jesus, why do I sin against him? If I really am redeemed, then where is the victory? Why do I still behave in self-destructing ways or God-dishonoring ways? Or as the Apostle Paul himself says in Romans 7, as he continues to flesh out this idea, he says, why do I continue to do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do? That's the question that we need help with in discipleship, isn't it? We need help with understanding how our lives actually transform as time goes on and we spend more time treasuring Jesus and in his word, in the pattern of sound teaching and in the pattern of sound living, how we actually transform. What is at the root of change in the Christian life? And Paul's answer in his teaching is so much more encouraging than just, well, you don't need to change and don't expect to change. Paul's teaching is not that God has saved you and therefore no change is necessary in your life. Paul's teaching is God has saved you and therefore change is now possible in your life. And so we need profound change as disciples of Jesus Christ. But sometimes nothing seems to work. You think about your own life. You think you've tried these different things and, and I've, I've, I've accomplished something for a little while and then it's fallen off again. You know, or what, what used to work for me doesn't work anymore. I started out great when I first came to Jesus and I was filled with that excitement of my love for Him and I had those changes in my life. Those things that used to work don't work anymore. And what we have to do after that infatuation or determination wears off is we have to get to something deeper than where we've been before in our discipleship. Or we have to remember or perhaps re-remember the deeper foundations that started our transformation in the first place. And that's what brings us to Romans chapter 6. Because in Romans chapter 6, Paul teaches what must happen for that change to take place and to be maintained in the life of a disciple. And he addresses the root foundation of change in our pattern of thinking and our pattern of living where true change comes from and how it happens. I'm going to read Romans 6, 1 to 18. Let me just pray firsthand. Father God, as we look into your word, I ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and open our eyes and sharpen our minds. Paul is teaching, the Apostle Paul is teaching very deep truths. And I'm poorly skimming over the surface of them. So I need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to uh, teach. I would ask that we would, these things would be, these truths would be clear in our hearts and that they would, that we would see the transforming power of them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans 6, 1 to 18. This may not be discipleship 101. This may be 201. Uh, so get your pencils out. Uh, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Here's the challenge that Paul has with the teaching of salvation by grace alone. We should just keep sinning so that God can show more grace. But Paul answers, by no means we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness." Paul answers the question of how disciples get at the very foundational level, at the very root level, transformation in their lives. And he gives us three principles, and they are that we have to recognize our spiritual slavery, realize the scope of our unity with Jesus, and live daily in our new identity. And the first one is recognize and recognizing our spiritual slavery. Verse 15 to 16 there, you'll notice that it says, Do you not know that you present, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And what Paul is saying here is about slavery. Why would anyone ever present themselves as a slave? And this it's maybe shocking to us when we think about slavery in the North American context and in our modern context, but that part of the sentence was not shocking to the people that Paul was writing and speaking to. They totally understood what Paul was talking about. The type of slavery that was most common was debt slavery, where you just got so indebted to somebody or you owed somebody so much money that it was easier just to go and work for them some set amount of time until your debt was paid off. And so this idea of somebody offering themselves in order to accomplish the repayment of their debt was totally normal to people in Paul's time. They weren't sort of shocked by that sentence at all. Uh, the idea that, you know, well, you're getting something out of it, you're getting free from your debt, but Paul says, don't you realize that while you're getting free from your debt, you are completely at the mercy of that person. You have to do everything that they tell you to do and to work off your debt. But So that part wasn't surprising. But the second part of his sentence actually is surprising to his readers. And it's surprising to us because Paul is saying that spiritually there are only two kinds of people in the world. That spiritually there are only people who are either obeying God and are sold out in obedience to obeying God or you are a slave to something else. And there's no other possibilities. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to obedience to God. And this is Paul's sort of new covenant in the light of the New Testament illumination of the Old Testament's first commandment, which says, does anybody remember the first commandment? I hope you do. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And this is Paul 
explaining that commandment in a way in a New Testament context, which is basically God saying, I must be your God. Don't make anything else a God ahead of me. I have to be the one who's your God. There's only two categories of living here. Either I'm your God or something else is your God, and there's no third alternative. There's no third possibility. Even if it's a small g God, there is nobody who doesn't have a God. It's either God or some other God. And everyone has a main way of significance or security is what we're talking about here. There is a way that you have a purpose in your life and there is a way that you feel secure or a way that you face difficulty in life. And regardless of what you think about religion or what you think about anything to do with the spiritual world, something in your life is the main way that you feel significant and the way that you feel secure. And that is your God. It could be your family. It could be career. It could be money. It could be fame, it could be status, it could be reputation. Any of those things could be the way that you feel you have significance and the way that you feel secure in your life. It could be sex, it could be approval of others, it could be your attractiveness, or it could be relationships that you have, or a relationship that you're in. You feel significant and you feel secure because of that thing in your life. And these are things that give you a sense of value. And you are going to live for something. Everybody is going to live for something. But what we often don't realize is that whatever that thing is, is a spiritual master. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 6. He's saying you're either obedient to God or you are obedient to some other thing in your life. And it ultimately enslaves you. It ultimately controls you because all your sense of significance and all your sense of security comes from it. And so in verse 12, Paul explains, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. He says you will be ruled by sin if you let it, and it results in your body giving in to evil desires or evil passions, or in the King James Version says uh, so poetically, the lusts of the flesh. You know, and... The word there, the verb that's translated for lusts of the flesh, if you like the King James, or for evil desires, or for passions, depending on your translation, is epithumia. Epithumia. And it's a compound word of epi and thumia. Right? And you know what the prefix epi means, don't you? You have an epidermis, or there's the epicenter of a storm. It means the, the above, or the, the, the center, or the, uh, it's the, it's the extra, right? And so epithumia means the over-desire. So if you were to translate this literally, Paul is saying, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its over-passion or its over-desire or its over-lust. He's saying, if you're not controlled by a desire for God, you will give in to an over-desire for something else. You will be extremely passionate about something else. And it will drive you to sin. And one commentator gave a very helpful illustration of this. He gave three illustrations of how this epithumia can work in our lives. You think in terms of anger. If something stops you from getting a good thing in your life, you get annoyed. right? There's something good there and something stops you from getting that good thing. Then you get annoyed. You get you know, maybe petulant. You get perturbed, upset. But... If you're going along in your life and something stops you from gaining your ultimate thing, 
that thing that your security and your significance lies in, and something or someone blocks you from having that ultimate thing in your life, then you don't just get angry, you get epi-angry. You get furious. You get bitter. You get resentful. You lose it. You blow up. You say things that you wish you never said. Or you get really bitter. If you're having trouble forgiving someone for something that happened in the past, is it because they stood between you and your epithumia, your over-desire for something in this world, and you can't forgive them that they dared to get between you and your little God that you needed? Or worry. If something good in your life is threatened, then you worry. Right? You're concerned, you're attentive to what's going on, because that's something that you like, and you worry a little bit if it gets threatened. And you're wondering how it might affect you. But if something threatens what is ultimate in your life, if something threatens your little G-God that your significance is set on, that your security is bound up on, then you are epi-worried. Your anxiety goes through the roof and you panic and you can't control your anxiety. You are so anxious that you can't think straight. And there is something that makes you so afraid that now you're driven by your fear of it. It's because something has become your spiritual master in this world. And so you, epithumia, you overpassionately respond sinfully. Or sadness. If you lose something good in your life, you're upset, you agree. It's like, oh man, I really like that. You know, number one Spider-Man comic book. You know, you lose something good, You're upset by that. That bothers you. You're sad about it. You grieve. It's unpleasant. It takes effort to find consolation. But if you lose something ultimate in your life, you want to throw yourself off a bridge. You're epi-sad. You stop working. You stop eating. You stop caring about anything because that thing that you thought was so good for you is gone because it had a spiritual hold of you. That's epithumia. That's what God is saying in the first commandment. That was, is what Paul is saying here is that, that there is either God who is God in your life or something else is God in your life and it will control you and drive you to overpassion, overdesire, sin. Martin Luther explains that nobody breaks any other commandment or sins in any other way except that they initially break the first commandment. In other words, you don't get Angry, you don't rage, you don't get over angry or over afraid or over sad. You don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal unless you first break the first commandment. You do those things because you have set something else ahead of you in your life as God instead of God. And you sin because you put something else ahead of God in that moment and that thing has you as a slave. That's why you sin. So what does all this mean to us as disciples? Paul is saying everyone has spiritual masters. You have to recognize your spiritual slavery to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to acknowledge at the very root that we are constantly in danger of becoming spiritual slaves of things in this world. And we are in constant danger of setting up other little G-gods ahead of God who will ultimately enslave us. And there will be no change in our life. There will be no victory or transformation in our life until we wake up and have that moment when we realize God has to be God and everything else can't be God. Then... There's the beginning for transformation.
Because we're finally set free from slavery to all the other spiritual masters in our life. But you have to get rid of that illusion or you'll never make any progress. Working out our sanctification, as Paul says in Philippians 2, that idea of work out your salvation, work out your sanctification, it involves understanding that everything is potentially a spiritual master and specifically knowing that our, what your most dangerous masters are. I don't know who you are. The shape of each of us is different. We all have different things that vie for our spiritual mastery. And so you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to decide what the things are that threaten you. The things that you're enslaved to. The things that would make you epi-angry or epi-worried or epi-sad if they were ever threatened or taken away from you. Those are the things that drive your passions to overindulgence and which keeps us trapped, spiritually trapped and unable to change. So you first have that realization that there's only two kinds of people. You're either a slave to God and obedience to him, or you are a slave to the spiritual masters of this world. And don't kid yourself, they are spiritual masters. They drive you. But then secondly, you have to realize the scope of your unity with Jesus. If you're going to get the power to make these changes in your life as a disciple, you have to understand verses 3 to 5, the scope or the fullness of the unity that we've been granted with Jesus Christ. He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we have been united with him in death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. You want change in your life? First of all, acknowledge and be well aware of your spiritual masters. Second of all, own this. Gospel good news. You've been united with Christ in death, and you will surely be united with him in his resurrection. You're no longer slaves to that old, dead body. You've been set free. And Paul is not talking about super-Christians here. He's talking about every Christian that has set their heart on Jesus. And he says we're united with him. And the word here that's used for united is very interesting. It's an agricultural word, and it means that we've been grafted into or we've been planted at the root side by side with the roots in the life of Jesus Christ, that we've been united in the past and in the future to Jesus Christ, that there's no separating us from Jesus Christ. We died in him. Colossians 3, 3 to 4 says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Where Jesus goes, we go. Because we're in his life. And how did this happen for us? Well, you can imagine, and this is the gospel coming now, that we talked about earlier. How, how did we get united in Christ like this? You imagine, uh, imagine somebody who's like really, really rich, like just stupid rich, right? Crazy money. Very, very rich. And, and they became rich through diligence. They became rich through hard work and cleverness and their own, you know, grit and determination and intelligence and their own personal merit. But then this very, very rich person gets married and all of their riches become shared with their spouse by legal union, by grace. The person that they marry hasn't done anything. 
to acquire all of that wealth. The person originally that earned it did everything to bring all of that wealth into the relationship. And the second person, they just get married. And just like that, all of that accomplishment and all of that wealth and all of that prestige joins them. And when that rich spouse takes their place of prominence and power, whether it's the husband or the wife, they're they're right there with them on the stage. That's how we are with Jesus. That we didn't do anything. It wasn't our merit. It wasn't our work. It wasn't our determination. We don't have any wealth. We have nothing. We're bankrupt spiritually, morally, in every way. And yet, Christ marries himself to us so that wherever he appears, we appear also and we just inherit all of that. That's us in Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father because of who He is and what He has done. And the Father loves His Son. And everything that the Father sees in Jesus is now legally true of us. God accepts us based on Jesus, not our past or our present. So we are united, and we have to realize as Christians that we're united with Jesus that closely in his past and what he's accomplished. But it also says in verse 5 that we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. It says certainly, not conditionally, not if you live a really good life or if you read your Bible every day or if you keep a journal in a quiet time or if you have a small group or if you pray this or pray that. He says, but certainly you are united to his resurrection. The moment you believe there's an unbreakable connection to Jesus' future. And this is where the power comes from, because what future is that? And there's a philosophical term that's used only twice in the whole Bible that talks about this. And the term is palingenesia. It means, again, genesis. And it's a concept, it's a concept that the Stoic philosophers believed that the universe would again be reborn, that history was actually an endless cycle, that civilization would decline over time, and as, as civilization continued to decline and get worse and worse and worse, there would be a purging, usually by fire, the Stoics believed, and the whole of creation or the whole world would be renewed in rebirth, and then history would start over again, and there's, it was just an endless cycle of birth and death. And that was Pana Palingenesia. But Jesus comes along, and this word's only used twice in the whole New Testament. Jesus comes along, and he suddenly grabs that word in Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus says, he says, Truly, truly, I tell you that at the renewal of all things, and that word that he uses there is palingenesia. He says, so his listeners know what he's talking about. He says, Truly, I tell you, at the palingenesia, When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says in the future, I'm taking the palingenesia. That's me. I'm remaking the world. And anyone who has given up anything to follow me, you're going to get it all back a hundred times more. He says, there's going to be a palingenesia, but there's only going to be one. There is a point in the future where everything is moving towards and the entire world will be reborn and all that was lost will be restored a hundred times, which is just, you know, poetic language for more than you can imagine. 
And history itself will be changed when Jesus sits on his throne and exerts all his authority. That's incredible. But what's even more incredible than that is what Paul says the second time this word is used in Titus. It's the only other time in the whole Bible. In Titus 3, 4 to 8, and I'll get to my point in just a second. (laughs) Paul says to young Titus, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. And he saved us through the washing of rebirth. And that word, rebirth, is the washing of palingenesia and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he says the washing of rebirth and renewal, renewal by the Holy Spirit, palingenesia. And you stop and you say, wait, but isn't palingenesia the future remaking of all of creation into the final glorious creation that Jesus intends by wielding his authority from the throne? Yes, that's the power that Paul is saying that we have. That's the renewal that disciples of Jesus Christ have in the Holy Spirit. That's power. Jesus on his throne power, rebirth and remaking of the whole universe power. That's what power you have been saved with. And you're united to Jesus in. Because Jesus took that word, palingenesia, and he said, I'm making that old stoic philosophy, that's mine. I'm remaking the world from my throne with my power, and that power is what I've given you by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says you have to realize your unity with Christ and the power that you have in your life. When we become a Christian, we become with these such small ambitions. You remember I talked about that in one of the very first sermons I preached on this? We come as Christians with such very small ambitions. We just want a little bit of inner peace, or we just want some inspiration, or we just want to feel something about better in our life. And we come thinking that that's all we really want from God. And God says, no. Disciples aren't allowed to have any small ambitions. Do you not understand the power that I'm giving you to transform your life? It is the power that will ultimately remake this universe. And you can go to Romans chapter 8 and see how Paul explains it in Romans chapter 8 when he says we all groan inwardly waiting for the the transformation that is to come. And that the whole of the world will be transformed through us. It's incredible power that we have as Christians because of our unity with Christ. We're not allowed to have small ambitions. We have to grasp this unity and what he has done and how this change happens. Look what Paul continues to go on to say to Titus. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. And Paul doesn't say this very often. He says, and I want you to stress these things. Why? So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That includes us. I cannot think of anything more excellent or profitable to teach on the power that you have to transform your life other than to say what Paul has said here, you have the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ with all the authority that he has on his throne at the end of time to transform the universe. 
So brothers and sisters, we have to get rid of our small ambitions and our low goals. We have to anticipate that the change that God has in store for us is beyond what we could hope or imagine. But our minds, when we first start out, when we first start out as Christians, and maybe sometimes later on as Christians, after we've been Christians, maybe it almost seems too long, although that's the wrong phrase. But our minds are not open enough or they're not alive enough to understand what power God has given us and what God wants to accomplish in our lives. And so Paul here, through various teachings and various means, wants to awaken our minds. First of all, to the fact that we have to be aware that we are spiritually slaves to something, but that we have been set free and we've been set free with universe transforming power. And so don't think that you cannot change or that you are not dead. You are dead to sin and alive with Christ, and you share all the glory and all the wealth and all the riches of his past, and you have all the power of his future in your unity with him. And then finally, close with this, it's the application. It's the third point, but really it's the application of the first two. Thirdly, we have to live daily in this new identity. Verse 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slave to sins. Paul says, your old identity is past tense. It's done. It's crucified. When you became a Christian, you are not the same person in terms of spiritual bondage. And so that in this new identity, your body is no longer under the slavery of old spiritual masters. You are finally free to be able to change. You ever think about it that way? Before you became a Christian, you actually couldn't change. You didn't have a choice to act out of the fruit of the Spirit or to act in the grace of God or by the power of the Holy Spirit. But when you became a Christian, you're actually set free from that old bondage so that now you do have a choice, now you do have power, and you do have a new authority to be obedient to. But it doesn't happen any automatically. Verse 11 says, In the same way count, or in the old translation we also often remember, in the same way reckon yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. And here, Paul, I'm going to give you one more Greek word. You notice there's been a Greek word for all three points. It's your last Greek word for the day. Legizomai. Legizomai is to reckon or to consider it true or to actively take into account. It's an accounting term. It's, it's something that you would talk about in terms of a ledger or in terms of a bank balance or in terms of a debt owed. You count or you reckon yourselves. It's a verb. It's something you have to do. So this, all this reality that we have in Jesus Christ, there's something for us to do. There's something on our part that we have to do, that we have to work out in our salvation. And that is that we have to count it, that we have to reckon it, that we have to daily put these things in our mind to say that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. I heard an illustration of working out your salvation that might be helpful to you. Because that's a, that's a verse we stumble on as disciples, right? You get to, you get to Philippians 2.12 and you're all excited about our unity with Christ and the humility that's demonstrated of who Christ is and to have a mind like Christ. And then he says, work out your salvation. And I, and I heard it described this way and it stuck with me that work out your salvation in that way. Think of it this way. It's like working out a math equation. So you can picture on a page a fairly long math equation and the equation is there and the answer's done. It's there. You just have to work it out to get the answer. You're not doing anything, you're not changing anything, you're not accomplishing anything in working out the math equation, you're just just doing the math. 
And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, you can think about it this way. Your life is like a math equation. You're just working out what God's already put on the page. You're working out what God has already figured out and there's already an answer for, but you have to work it out. The answer won't change, but you've got to figure it out. You have to work out your salvation throughout your life. And that's what Paul is saying here. Is you have to reckon yourselves dead to sin. You have to do this stuff in your sanctification. And then he says in verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that you have now, that has now claimed your allegiance. There is a pattern of teaching. There's a pattern of sound words. There is a pattern of sound living that transforms our heart and it lets us obey out of that transformed heart. But we have to do the obedience, Paul says. Now I'll leave you with this. Like understand that that Romans 6 was not a list of a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, right? When I talked about, you know, how what it is we have to do to be a disciple or what it is we have to do to be de- be sanctified, Romans 6 is not a list of, you know, don't smoke and don't chew and don't go to movies and don't dance and, you know, don't do these things. Because that's just legalism. Like, there's things that you can't do that naturally flow out of this. Don't get me wrong. Paul gives us some lists. But as disciples, we got to go deeper than just do this, don't do that. We have to go to understanding the reality of what's going on in our lives and why we can and why we can't change. This is the pattern of sound teaching and understanding that Paul wants for us that is so profitable for us. So if you're struggling today to put sin to death in your life, if, if you're struggling today to shut the book on volume one of your life, to, to close the chapter on old habits and old lifestyles, or if you are still epithumia, if you're still over-passionate or over-enslaved to things of this world that just trigger you or set you off or just torment you with worry or fear, then Paul says recognize there's a spiritual battle going on and make God your God and all the other things are not your God. And having made God your God, realize your unity with Christ, that you own all of God's Jesus has passed, all that he's accomplished and everything that he has done to earn your salvation so that God smiles upon you like he smiles on his own son. And that you have unity with all the power that Jesus has and is given to you by his Holy Spirit for transformation. Not just transformation of your life, transformation of the whole universe is the power that Jesus has given you. And then Paul says, live out that new identity. Live that reality out day to day. And so I get it. For a lot of people, maybe you're just hearing this for the first time. And so today is the first day you're going to start living that out. That i got to put all the other gods behind God. That I am totally unified with all the power that Jesus has. And I'm going to start living that out today. That's how disciples change, by the power and the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.